I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Amber Duke. I'm Jeremy Carl. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so we have a, a varied show per usual uh, for the first week of the year here. Uh, we're going to kick it off with, I think, the most important domestic political story, keeping Trump off the ballot in multiple states of the union. We are very pleased to have Jeremy with us today to talk about that. Um, then we're going to kick it over to myself. Um, we're, I'm going to talk about the potential uh, legal case building out of Texas and Governor Abbott's attempts to enforce uh, any semblance of immigration law on the border. Um, then we're going to kick it over to Amber to talk about Ohio, the Ohio governor caving to the trans lobby, refusing to sign a very basic bill defining sex in sports and forbidding sex change for minors. Um, and then finally, we're going to close it out with Ben as to why Obama has weighed in and uh, both publicly and then especially behind the scenes uh, in the battle over the resignation of Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll toss it off to um, to Jeremy to, to kick us off today. Yeah, thanks, it is. And I'm glad you mentioned that this is the, the most important domestic issue, because I think it is. And in many senses, it's uh, to, to use kind of the, the left favorite terminology. I'm really disturbed that we're sort of normalizing what's going on uh, because there's nothing normal about the sorts of lawfare that we're seeing against Trump right now. Most recently, the main secretary of state on December 28th moving unilaterally. This is an unelected official to kick Trump off the ballot because of an alleged insurrection. Um, you know, I'll go further. And I think even the right is in denial about this to some degree. It, to me, we we cannot have a fair, free and fair election at this point in 2024. Now that does not mean I'm not I'm not blackpilling here. Does not mean I do not think the right can win. Um, lots of times uh, you'll see see uh, opposition parties uh, win elections that are in varying ways rigged. But just the level of of completely illegal lawfare that we're seeing right now against the candidate who is leading in the general election polls, it just precludes even if it stopped tomorrow. Uh, we wouldn't have a fair election. Trump has had to spend all of his time uh, defending himself against this sort of thing. Um, it's it's just it's completely outrageous. It's the sort of thing that you would see, uh, you know, even in a banana republic, you would sort of look askance at what's going on. And yet we've seen this in Colorado. We're seeing efforts in Arizona. We're seeing efforts in Nevada, Oregon, New Mexico, New York, and Texas. I expect we'll continue to see this. Uh, the left is sort of obsessed with this kind of notion that they can. Um, uh, simply as as kind of word cells or whatever that if they simply say the word insurrection uh, enough that somehow a legal requirement will be met uh, for insurrection but of course that's not really how things work so instead we have this unelected um, former longtime director of the main ACLU which is of course a ridiculously partisan organization regardless of what they say um, kind of unilaterally kicking um, Trump off the ballot, just as we saw um, elite law school uh, grads uh, in in the Colorado Supreme Court, which was all Democrats, um, kicking voting to kick Trump off the ballot, or sort of the more normal like University of Denver law school people said, yeah, maybe this is not such a good idea. But it's it's really just a collapse to me of of elite institutions. Um, I think, again, I don't think in many ways the right doesn't want to acknowledge just how bad this is, even though we're running around screaming this is really bad, because to really kind of come to grips 
with what's going on suggests that we really kind of moved into a, a fully post-democratic moment, uh, small d, in the United States. And I don't think people really want to deal with um, what that means. I'd also add, it, it, it's not just election interference in the sense that uh, it, it obviously hurts Trump in a general election, but I think it's it's been a blatant interference in the Republican primary, is I think that actually allowing Trump to be the victim in this way, and he is the victim, I, I want to be fair about that, has really hurt his main rival DeSantis. And you really began to see, as this lawfare picked up, um, DeSantis really suffering in the polls. And I think the motivations uh, of the Democrats who are kind of engaged in this sort of thing are are complex and different depending on the actor. But I think in many cases, um, the desire to have Trump as their general election appoint, uh, uh, opponent, perceiving him to be the most weakened appoint, op opponent against a very, very weak uh, incumbent, uh, I think this is very much part of their strategy. So it's, it's interference, it's legal interference uh, by the opposition in the Republican primary, it's legal interference in the general election, uh, it's forcing Trump to spend all of his time uh, worrying about this and spending all of his money and all, all the Trump's uh, kind of allies who are kind of in jail or being threatened with that, um, rather than talking about the lawless presidency of Joe Biden. Um, and so uh, really, to me, we, we couldn't uh, do, you know, the, this is kind of the our democracy, quote unquote, on steroids. Um, We've, we've really crossed the Rubicon. Uh, I think there's a reluctance to acknowledge how much we've crossed the Rubicon. Uh, the Supreme Court should not have to. The Supreme Court will save Trump. I mean, I think it, we'd all be stunned if the Supreme Court allows these ballot challenges to stand. Um, I think it's it's kind of really um, sort of strange behavior to these sort of law school professors saying, oh, well, you know, they, they won't uh, be able to come up with the justification. No, they're going to just come up with a justification. I don't know what that will be. I'm not familiar with the minutiae, but they will figure out a way to not kick Trump off the ballot because our Supreme Court is not that insane. Um, but but we shouldn't need the Supreme Court to save Trump in this uh, situation. Um, laws need to mean something. Words need to mean something. Uh, the whole situation is just incredibly, incredibly disturbing. And as bad as uh, I think Republicans are, are saying that this is, and it is really bad. It's really 10 times worse. And I think the implications are just like this, this white hot uh, bright sun that we don't want to stare at because we don't want to acknowledge just how bad things have gotten. So with that, I will kick it over to the group. Yeah, um, just, just a few points. One, on the specifics of this, um, it seems pretty clear to me. I mean, obviously I'm not a Lamar, I'm not a 14th Amendment scholar, and I'll, I'll take it one notch back in terms of, of um, focus at 30,000 feet in a moment um, and all the, the implications that Jeremy is rightly pointing to. But on the substance of this, it seems pretty clear to me, you know, Section 5 required, it gives Congress the power to effectuate this. Congress has effectuated it twice, right? What this, because the obvious question after this was passed, right, is what does insurrection mean? This is not the first time um, that we've considered this question, obviously, during after the Civil War, we had to consider this question. Um, and then Congress has considered that exact question twice, come up with two different definitions. First, in the 1880s, um, has defined insurrection as a, like uh, basically allowing the DA to bring either civil or criminal charges for insurrection. Again, 
bringing that before like into a court though not necessarily in front of a jury um anyway so that was the definition until the 1940s then they federally defined that that federal crime of insurrection so they defined insurrection in the law that was the effectuation of this power right um and Trump has never been charged with insurrection, let alone convicted of insurrection. And given the fact that these DAs obviously are trying to throw anything against the wall to try to make it stick to Trump, the fact that even Jack Smith won't charge uh, insurrection, I think shows how absurd uh, this this um, sort of, as Jeremy says, this legally, you know, two law professors, you know, <laughs> a handful of law professor word cells constructing this theory uh, on such fundamental questions, uh, even pre-constitutional uh, you know, questions that go in some sense, even pre-political, right? When the political process breaks down, um, you know, politics is war by other means, or people find other ways to resolve their differences. You are really playing with the forces that create civil war here. Um, not to sound dramatic, but I, I think it's an accurate sure. description. Um, and, and that's, I guess, my second point is that this, all of the examples that one can point to um, from this, uh, like in this debate, there's a reason we keep going back to the Civil War, uh, Confederate officers after the Civil War, by the way, many of whom did go on to mm. run and hold office, right? Um, so we keep going back. It's, it's almost like the left thinks that they they need they can treat the right um, as a vanquished foe in the Civil War without actually fighting the war. Uh, that's <laughs> what this, yep. this seems like to me. Um, and it's almost as though they imagine that 75 million Trump voters will evaporate if they take Trump off the ballot. What they're doing here is something pre-political or perhaps post-political would be a better way of describing it, right? This is the evisceration of the political process uh, and the direct application of force, essentially changing the law by force. And yes, we have precedent for that. We also fought a very bloody civil war to do that, right? One side ultimately imposed its vision on the other side, but the cost of that was a civil war. And it's almost like they want to circumvent that and go to the end and, and sort of directly impose a political vision that is opposed by half or more of their countrymen, right? So um, this this is a uh, real serious stuff. I also hope that this this will be um, struck down. Uh, but yeah, that, that's my depressing two cents to open the year. I think that's very astute. Uh, and as to say that this is a post-political move by the left, because if you look at it from a purely political standpoint, there's no sane strategy behind it. Um, the polls that have come out thus far, in the, at least in the past few months, have held that even among voters who view, quote unquote, democracy, whatever that means when you're polling voters, it's a completely useless question anyway on a poll. But if you polled voters about democracy, um, it turns out that President Joe Biden only holds a three or four percentage point advantage on voters who trust him more to preserve democracy as opposed to former president Donald Trump. So if the point of all of this lawfare against Trump is to paint him as the anti-democratic fascist, as we've seen in these um, media headlines that have become awfully trendy among the Atlantic, the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, it, 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 it's just if you were a political strategist, you would look at that and say, this makes no sense because this is not where where Biden has most of his advantage. He doesn't even really have much of an, of an advantage on abortion either, which is a separate question. But the fact that they're putting that aside, just basic political strategy, um, is is very indicative of the fact that this is this is more about adding another hurdle to Trump and and treating him as if he's already been defeated, uh, as Inez um, rightfully pointed out.
I think it's clear that defending democracy clearly means disenfranchising millions of voters in the political opposition while calling the political opposition authoritarians. And obviously, as we've mentioned ad infinitum here, this is all about projection in many ways. It's clear that they, the left does not care about politics at this point if they want to shackle and jail uh, in the process gag and here simply remove from the ballot the political opposition, chill anyone who would dare represent the political opposition in a legal context, probably go after any donors behind them, et cetera, and not only treat conservatives and MAGA world and everyone who is non-progressive as neo-Confederates, but domestic terrorists as well, for that matter. While, of course, real terrorist groups can operate pretty much with impunity here. Uh, we can talk about the merits of the disqualification arguments. I think the merits are really besides the point, and that's what all the lawfare is about. The lawfare is about laundering political warfare through a court to try and legitimize and cre create the appearance of legitimacy and normalizing the completely and wholly illegitimate and take the political process out of the political realm. Um, you know, we could talk about, obviously, the Colorado case. There was no due process. It was a sham Soviet-style show trial, a ramming through of a decision that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, doesn't necessarily apply to a president. It doesn't clearly in the text of the 14th Amendment. The fact that, ironically here, the states have kind of turned this amendment on its head because this was about federal power and subordinating state power post-Civil War. But here, Democrats, of course, are for uh, states' rights to the nth degree. So, you know, obviously it's a joke legally, but it's a very real and perilous situation for America when the legal system has been completely overrun by political zealots. And while the Supreme Court, I, I totally agree with Jeremy, it's sad that we even need to look to the Supreme Court as a backstop here. Uh, it's a dire indictment of lower courts. But the sad thing is, while this may be a layup case for SCOTUS, I expect many other cases, and we already know many other Trump-related cases are likely to come before it, whether it's on presidential immunity, whether it's on obstruction of an official proceeding, et cetera. And while this may be a layup for the court, how will the court rule in the other cases that ultimately are to come before it? And I think part of this process, as I've argued before, is about putting maximum pressure on the court to either cause it to how and submit to the left in some of these other cases, or to completely delegitimize de it. And I think ultimately, if the court does stand strong in many of these cases, we may see a nullification type crisis in this country, clearly a constitutional crisis as well. So that's my privilege of 2024. I think it's going to be one of the most tumultuous years in the history of the country. And I don't think that's going to prove an overstatement, sadly. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, uh, I guess. Transitioning topics here, the only uh, river that is more trafficked in the United States than the Rubicon we've just been discussing is the Rio Grande. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about next in this segment. Um, there's a very interesting, once again, uh, a lot of things going to be up to the Supreme Court, as Ben just indicated. Um, there is going to be a very interesting case building here. Uh, over who has the power to enforce the border. This is going to be almost, well, let me take a step back and say, um, so Texas uh, in the, the final weeks of the year um, in a special session has passed a series of state laws um, that have effectuated, essentially are a last ditch attempt to try to stem the record breaking flood um, over their border and across the Rio Grande from their, our Southern border, right? Of migrants 
um, and and of many other people. There was an arrest over uh, over the Christmas break of of somebody um, who who came in uh, the terrorist uh, potential terrorists that came in through the border. So leaving all of that aside, I'm sure my my co panelists will um, discuss some of the the natural state of how bad the border is. But I, I want to bring to the attention. Uh, of our listeners, this this potential Supreme Court case uh, that that we'll be building. Uh, so the, the laws that Texas passed, um, they they build a section of wall on the southern border. Uh, they send extra troopers, they fund extra troopers to patrol the border and to patrol. There's a lot of like safe houses, flop houses. Um, I think they call them stash houses down there uh, of of essentially coyotes bringing um, immigrants back and forth across the border in a smuggling operation along with drugs and everything else. So they fund more troopers. Here's going to be the sticky issue. Um, it makes it a state crime to cross the border, but then um, makes under remedies. It allows the judges uh, in Texas to uh, essentially suspend sentence if the uh, defendant agrees to return to Mexico. Right. So uh, makes essentially deportation a, um, a consequence of, of the crime or an alternate consequence of the state crime, now federal crime of crossing the border. Um, and then increases policing as well with those stash houses that I've mentioned. Um, and so it increases the sentences for running one of those houses. Texas apparently has had problems with almost like city level, um, like these kind of illegal cities that have sprung up uh, around the border where illegal immigrants are going to. So an attempt to police that side of, of their own border. Um, so the interesting conflict here um, in terms of, of federal law and state law, the Biden administration has already announced they're going to uh, sue. They're going to, to say you are eating in as a state to the plenary power of the federal government to enforce immigration law. Uh, we have had this case uh, of a type before back in 2012, Arizona uh, against the United States. Um, that was over that SB 1070 bill that was very, uh, if anyone remembers <laughs> sort of the headlines in 2012, um, it, it was around and, and was very um, controversial at that time. It was so-called check your papers bill, right? Um, so the left really hated that one, but it did more than just allow state troopers to check the immigration status of anyone they stopped. Uh, it also made it, so it duplicated essentially federal law and made it a state crime and allowed the state of Texas to incarcerate people for violating immigration law. Um, so that case was a, a narrowly decided case. Uh, Justice Kagan had to recuse herself in that case. Uh, so it ended up being um, a, a uh, liberal victory despite that. But some people, for some reason, thought um, that Kagan, I, I'm not an expert in her philosophy, um, her judicial philosophy. But anyway, so the point is, this was a narrowly decided case at the time. The court has changed tremendously since that, that time. Scalia wrote a great dissent in that case where he essentially says, well, state law duplicates federal law. So um, in this case, yes, uh, Congress has plenary power to extend and to make immigration law. Now, if Congress made a different immigration law, uh, then Texas, Texas can enforce its own immigration law. But if Texas is just enforcing the same law that's on the books on the federal level, there's no conflict here. Um, and, and therefore, Texas should be allowed to do that. So I'm hoping that's the reasoning that the court will follow. Um, it, it does highlight the huge distance. And I think the difficulty for the Biden administration here will be on paper, our immigration law says X, right? Which is already bad from our perspective, right? Our asylum laws are bad, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there is this entire regulatory and extra extra legal system upon which our current actual enforcement depends. We saw this most clearly when uh, I think it was called Title 42, right? When it was an emergency pandemic title 
that the federal government was relying on to deport people, right? Um, and then when that expired, there was going to be a disaster. Um, so there's this huge separation between the, the fairly minimalistic words that were written by Congress and this entire regulatory state and what's possible for the executive to do, what's not possible for the executive to do in the case of Biden, um, who wants to circumvent the federal obligation to enforce immigration law, right? So um, especially with the court being so skeptical these days of this essentially administrative state governing apart from the words of Congress and usurping the powers of Congress, I think this could end up being a very important case to watch for a variety of reasons. With that, sorry for that very long introduction, I'll kick it out to uh, the rest of you. Well, Inez, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned this and, and I'm gonna use your, um context that you were you're just using the, the terminology uh with trump which is pre and post political because i think in many ways what the left is trying to do in immigration is again it, it's not even part of the political process they've simply decided to ignore the very clearly written law to not have a border and the question becomes when you have such a fundamental breakdown and you you broke down the liberal uh, the the legal minutiae very nicely but when you have a situation where the federal government is simply saying, hey, you know, like, we don't really care what the law is. We're just not going to enforce. We're just going to let everybody in. Does the state really have any recourse um, to, to, as you said, kind of a Scalia fashion to basically enforce the federal law when the federal government refuses to do so? Um, and I think the fact that we are even here kind of talking about it, that, that, that kind of America has gotten to that state is um, it's just a very disturbing kind of metapolitical uh, element of where we are today. I think it's fascinating as well, the way that we talk about these Democrats who are sort of bucking their party, but not really, right? Because you have the Chicago mayor, you have Eric Adams, um, you have Democrats in Congress like Henry Quaylar, who are from border states, who are saying, yes, the border is a problem. Yes, it's a crisis. Of course, they never said that when it was actually border states besides Henry Quaylar, who had to deal with the consequences. It was only when they were all put on trains and buses and planes and sent to their cities. But what is their solution when they're talking to their own party about what they want to change? It's never to actually tighten border security. It's never to reduce the number of migrants who are coming. It's give us more money, give us more resources, also increase the processing time so the people can come in even more quickly um, in, a, in an actually more, I guess, legal way in the sense that they're actually going through a process as opposed to just walking into the country. Um, and then uh, uh, give them work permits so that they can um, undercut American workers. And of course, Biden is like the most pro-union president or whatever it is that they say. So it's just, I think we need to be a little bit more skeptical and a little bit more aggressive on these Democrats who are supposedly bucking their party when their solution is actually just to make it easier for people to come in and to give them even more benefits and incentives for them to do so. I'll just say briefly that we should clearly state every time this issue comes up that the Biden administration's policy is invasion. That is the immigration policy. If there, if that's not an impeachable act, I don't know what is an impeachable act, but obviously uh, those in Congress don't seem to have the stones to do anything about it. Ultimately, we can talk about all the different ways that immigration is being used to drive the left's agenda. One that doesn't get enough attention, but that I always like to bring up is that in apportionment for House seats, apportionment is dictated by the number of people in a place, not the number of citizens in a place. 
And so this is another way through illegal immigration that Democrats can massively disproportionately grow the number of blue house seats, essentially, by flooding jurisdictions with illegal aliens to increase the size of the people in a place and therefore get more representatives for those places. So it's just another way that we have actually foreign interference in our elections, aided and abetted by the left. And the political question, set aside the legal one that that SCOTUS will probably deal with, is what are states to do when federal authorities are completely derelict in their duties to faithfully uphold the law and defend our territory? And at the end of the day, I don't know how anyone could argue against states actually stepping up and doing something when the federal response is to eviscerate sovereignty. And with that, I'm going to kick it over to Amber to discuss uh, yet another failure of the Republican Party. (laughs) Yes. What else is new? Uh, So in this case, um, the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine, vetoed a bill that came to his desk that would have both banned the inclusion of biological men who identify as women from playing or participating in women's sports and also would have prohibited sex changes, puberty blockers, and hormone therapies, and therapy is not the right word, but you catch my drift, um, for minors who have gender dysphoria. And um, this is a bill that will be overridden by the legislature, luckily. So um, they're kind of saving his butt. But I think the failure to sign such a basic acknowledgement of biological reality is something that would disqualify any Republican from holding any sort of higher office. Um, It's uh, disillusioning and unfortunately not the first time that we've seen Republicans punt on this very obvious win. Um, Christy Noem was one of the first to do this. She is the South Dakota governor. She had a bill to protect women's sports come to her desk And she vetoed it and then after outrage, tried to waffle on her reasoning for doing so, but ultimately admitted that it was because she was scared of the NCAA and the potential punishment that they might bring on South Dakota for for not enforcing biological uh, distinctions in sports. She said that she was afraid they would take tournaments and events away from her state and that would hurt the economy. Um, because the economy, of course, as we know, in, in, uh, for libertarian-esque Republicans is sort of the Lord and Savior of the movement and more important than anything else, um, even protecting young women. Um, and then also Asia Hutchinson had vetoed a bill uh, like this. And on the uh, recent GOP debate, Chris Christie said that he would have um, opposed something that would ban uh, sex changes for minors And both of their reasoning for doing so, as well as Mike DeWine's, is quite interesting because they are using the language of the parental rights movement in a way that advances libertarian ends. So what they're saying is these decisions need to be left to parents and physicians for them to decide, and the government needs to stay out of it because this is fundamentally a parental rights issue. I think Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said it best when, in response to Chris Christie's answer on the GOP debate stage, said, you don't have a parental right to child abuse. Um, And that's exactly what this is, is child abuse. There are no uh, conceivable benefits to what the left calls gender-affirming treatment. Not a single study has held up the idea that you should or can treat gender dysphoria by chopping off healthy body parts or delaying or permanently Um, skipping through puberty, as well as giving hormone therapy. And, uh, and there's my cat. 
and and uh and also um the the benefit or the the harm that this can cause in terms of um suicidal ideation depression anxiety um those are all potential side effects of these treatments and there's no um there's no study that exists that says that any of them um help reduce any of of the the issues with gender dysphoria um, that children might face. There's a reason why the UK of all places has pulled back on issuing hormones and puberty blockers to young people um, outside of clinical study. And it's because they have found that their approach to this was fundamentally wrong. So again, for a Republican or a conservative to refuse to um, shut this down um, is, a, is a huge dereliction of duty. It's immoral um, and just fundamentally unjust and and, uh, and, and anti-child, I think anti-life. Um, it's a sad thing to see, but um, uh, uh, there was a report that Mike DeWine apparently has received $40,000 plus from various children's hospital groups in Ohio over the past few years. And of course, this is a very expensive business. Doctors and hospitals and pharmaceutical companies make a lot of money out of prescribing hormones and puberty blockers to children. They become lifelong patients who over time are constantly seeking more medication, eventually surgeries, which are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars range. So this is a very profitable business at this point. And it kind of goes back to what Christy Nome said, which is sometimes the economic considerations for these people outweigh what is moral and just. Um, and it's shameful to see from the party that is is supposed to be standing up against this insanity. Yeah, just to follow up on that last point that Amber made, I really want to see a Nate Hawkman style investigation uh, into how this decision was made in Mike DeWine's office. Um, I want to see what obvious he was talking to. I want to see which of his advisors uh, was in favor of this veto. I think it's really important structurally if, if there's like any hope for uh, sort of NatCon style future in the Republican Party uh, to understand how, uh, on the, especially on the state level. And you know what? Actually, I'm I'm much less sympathetic in Ohio's case than South Dakota's. And believe me, I'm no fan of Christy Nome. But um, you know, there is a big state, small state here. <laughs> Amber's cat. Um, but there's a big state, small state issue here, which is why I think it's so important. And we've talked about on this program that Republican states band together against this kind of economic warfare uh, and stand as a united front. And when you have a small state with just one or two industries that dominate uh, in terms of jobs, uh, the pressure that can be brought to bear is very, very high. Anyway, I, I think structurally, it's very important to understand why this veto happened. I really I mean, I don't know, of course, but I sort of doubt that this is a veto of conscience. I think this is probably a battle that played out behind the scenes in terms of various interests in the governor's office. And I think it's really important for us to know what those are. Um, on the substance of parental rights and the parental rights argument, um, I, I think obviously Amber said it well and, and quoting um, Governor DeSantis about the line, there are things we do not permit parents to do uh, with, with their children. Um, I think this rises to that level. I think we would obviously see that if it were any context other than sexual, right? If we were allowing parents were taking their kids to the doctor to have their arms removed, um, I think it would be extremely obvious to us that both sides of that transaction should be illegal. It should be illegal for parents to take their children to a doctor to have their arms removed. And it should be illegal for a doctor to perform 
that surgery, which is a violation, um, not only should not only be a violation of the law, but also of any professional oaths um, or, or uh, ethics standards of the profession, right? Um, but it, it is it is worth um, thinking about, I think, the physician side of this. I, I think that's one way to um, cut through the way that I, I was just did with that example. I think that's one of the ways to cut through the parental rights argument and say, like, do you think a doctor should be performing on young you know, on minors, um, surgeries or, or, um, hormonal therapies that have these effects, like how, cause I think, I think it's, it's a useful, anyway, I think it's a useful rhetorical exercise to focus on what the obligations and the laws controlling the doctors are, uh, in, in this instance, because to me, it seems like an obvious, uh, obvious, something like should obviously be illegal as a service for a doctor to offer. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd just add. I mean, if, this issue has just been inexplicable to me. I, I've been, you know, I've been involved in this uh, at the state level here in Montana. Um, if there was ever an issue that I just thought, like even the Republicans couldn't mess it up, it was just such an easy win. It's so obviously crazy. We will so obviously be vindicated. I mean, arguably, even in the short term, we're really vindicated and we're in the popular position. But in the medium or longer term. Uh, the people who are involved in this will correctly be seen as as either victims, I mean, like true victims of medical malpractice or criminals in the case of the folks who perpetrated it. Um, the fact that we've been so short-sighted that, that we're still kind of, uh, you know, kicking the ball at our own goal here, it's just amazing to watch. And, and as I agree with you that uh, what we need to do is is really understand the institutional forces at work within these governor's offices, et cetera, that are um, pushing these types of solutions uh, to to these sorts of problems, pushing these uh, the veto in this case, because it's just hard for me to believe that even the dumbest establishment Republican could be so dumb as to think that this is good substantively or politically. Totally agree. This is disastrous on the merits. It's disastrous on the politics. You can imagine we've already gone very far down the slippery slope, but what comes next after this would be a question worth raising. I can only speculate that this was a craven cowing to the to big business and also probably big medicine. And as Amber noted, there have been exposés done showing that this is a real cash driver, cash generator for uh, the medical profession, which is incredibly disturbing and sickening. You can also imagine, and you know, if you've read, for example, and I'd urge everyone to read it if you haven't, when Harry became Sally, that there's intense pressure on doctors themselves as they're going through medical school to adhere to radical gender ideology. So this is just sickening and, and disturbing all the way down. Uh, there, there has to be an expose as to how the governor came to this decision. But once again, I mean, it, it really is stealing victory from the jaws of defeat here. When you're talking about an 80-20 kind of issue, something where the American people at their core, even if they take a live and let live so-called attitude on so many different issues, view this as just a barbaric sort of practice one, by the way, if we're going to talk about the medical merits where there's zero longitudinal studies done, there's almost no evidence out there compellingly to indicate 
that this is somehow gender affirming care, so-called is a positive thing for the quote unquote beneficiaries who oftentimes rue what happened down the road. And yeah, on this case, always it should be thrown back in the progressives faces here. Why are we behind the European curve on this? Why aren't we doing what the global community is saying we should be doing when it comes to quote unquote gender affirming care? So disgusting and horrible all the way down. And we can only hope that Ohio's legislature will override the veto. Uh, but I understand that the thresholds are very high and I'm not optimistic about it. I was just going to let Ben continue to transition. Yeah, I'll just keep riffing. Off, yeah. But uh, <laughs> it's giving us a, a whole new reason to Google Obama and gay together. So. <laughs> Well, I don't even know how to follow up that introduction to the segment, but I will give it a shot here. Uh, there's also the latest in the Claudine Gay saga at Harvard is that there are more plagiarism allegations coming down. The most recent count is around 50 alleged instances of plagiarism in her record. I think eight of 17 published works show indicators of there being plagiarism. Uh, this probably in many ways is a great reflection of what a top university administrator, their academic record actually would look like based on the criteria and the merits that big schools are looking for, prominent schools are looking for. So that's one point that we can make about love, fair, gay. Um, but it came out over a week ago that Barack Obama had privately been lobbying on gay's behalf. I actually reached out to the reporter behind that story at Jewish Insider to ask if this was before or after the plagiarism allegations started to come down. The reporter indicated that uh, based on his reporting that this Obama support had come before the plagiarism allegations, but he hasn't retracted his support for gay. So we have to imagine that it still stands. And there was a lot of speculation as to why Barack Obama would weigh it in here. One element of the speculation is that Penny Pritzker runs the Harvard Corporation, which is essentially the board that led the search process, which picked Claudine Gay out of, I think, 600 uh, prospective presidents for Harvard. And that essentially Obama's trying to protect Pritzker here for a disastrous decision on the merits and in terms of the optics. Um, also, there's speculation, you know, look, there's that gay is sort of a kindred spirit for Obama. And as I wrote in this piece, the New York Post, you know, thinking about Obama's, if I had a son, well, if Barack Obama were a kid today and he were at Harvard, he would probably be marching with the Hamas Knicks on campus. And we could talk about his ties to an affinity for everyone from Bill Ayers to Rashid Khalidi to Reverend Wright and everything that gets brushed under uh, and ignored about his radicalism. But I'm sure he feels a kinship. And we see a kinship, by the way, in the remarks that we talked about here that he made after October 7th, where he said, essentially, we're all culpable here uh, and and seek to essentially shift some of the blame to Israel for Hamas's jihad. Set all that aside. To me, the most important thing about Barack Obama waiting in here is that this is the head of the Democratic Party in everything but name, putting his chips behind Claudine Gay, who is touted as the first uh, black and female president of Harvard, who instituted essentially a DEI administrative state at Harvard, injecting anti-racism and equity into every aspect of the school, who, by the way, of course, 
in rising to the presidency, destroyed the career of Roland Fryer, by all accounts, a brilliant black economist there. And I think maybe the youngest tenured professor in the economics department or maybe in any department at the school also went against and destroyed a black law professor for having the gall to provide legal defense to Harvey Weinstein. So her whole career is uh, a sham in many ways and disgraceful in many ways. But he's behind her because this is the representative par excellence of our DEI regime at the most prominent school that there is in the country. And so to me, I view this as a regime level, a proxy battle here, both symbolically, but also substantively one of the biggest battles to defend gay because if gay falls, first of all, it exposes the moral bankruptcy and corruption of the entire DEI enterprise but also it could lead to it, its collapse and, and the collapse of a house of cards. And obviously DEI is under assault in many ways, the backlash against wokeism nationally, the Supreme Court decision over affirmative action. So I think that gay or rather Obama getting behind gay is taking a stand for the regime, which is obviously critical for indoctrinating and credentialing the next generation of radicals. DEI is an organizing principle for the intersectional alliance on which Democrat power is based. And then ultimately, of course, DEI is all about engendering this conformity and building an army of leftists to go out and dominate every single institution. So Barack Obama getting behind gay is Barack Obama standing up for the DEI regime. And that, I believe, is the real importance of the story of him getting behind Claudine Gay. And then more broadly, the Jew hatred that we've seen fomenting and exploding on college campuses is the glue that holds, in part, as I've argued, the progressive and Islamic supremacist intersectional alliance together. But it's also a direct byproduct of DEI itself. And you can extrapolate from hatred of Jews and hatred of all whites as the oppressors and Ashkenazi Jews as the oppressors par excellence. Uh, and then also the hatred of Judeo-Christian Western civilization, which is ultimately at the core of DEI and the woke movement itself. So this is a battle that is about far more than Claudine Gay or Harvard, but it gets to ultimately our ruling regime itself. And that's why I think it's so significant that Obama has waited in here. So with that, feel free to pick at any aspect that I just raised. I think we're going to be talking about the issue of the universities and the corruption and the moral bankruptcy of the universities and what Republicans mainly are going to do about it over the next year, I think it's imperative that we keep the, the pressure on to not let the issue just die as we go into the new year, but rather to really drive it home. Um, so with that, if anyone wants to jump in on any aspect, feel free. Yeah, this is the only bright spot uh, in what Ben rightly, I think, and I agree with him looking forward. It's hard to see uh, how this is not going to be an incredibly tumultuous political year. Um, given the election and all the things we've been talking about in previous segments, this is the only bright spot for me. I can imagine more imagine in the next several months, for example, a re Republicans um, being able to come together to at least pass among Republicans, right, um, which would already lay down a marker for what Republican policy is. Just to throw out one example, either attacks on universities, as I've discussed, or um, a writer, a DEI eliminationist writer on federal money, the way that some states have put riders saying you cannot use state money if you have a DEI department, right? Basically fire all your DEI staff or you get no money. That's a mandate that universities will tear themselves apart over. 
Um, they are dependent. They are vulnerable. They are dependent on federal money. Uh, they need it in order to operate. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just, I'm very optimistic about how this is going forward. And actually, contract Chris, Chris Rufo, who, you know, he's probably right because his political instincts have been proven to be absolutely impeccable. And he's been uh, one of the, the greatest and most successful activists on our team. I love Chris Rufo, to be clear. Um, but I actually disagree. I think having the scalp of Fadine Gay on our wall is not nearly as valuable as having her as emblematic of what's wrong with Harvard and what's wrong with our universities in America largely. So I'm glad that the uh, the gay affair is going to continue at Harvard <laughs> to keep to keep the uh, um, the double entendres going. Yeah, and, and, and I agree with you, actually, um, in um, I think it's much better to have Claudine Gay there than it is to get rid of her. And I actually saw something I, I and I know Chris, and I've talked with him a little bit about this. And I don't want to speculate too much about his motives, but there have been uh, some things that have I, I've seen that suggest that actually it's 17 dimensional chess. And Chris is knowing that by pushing so visibly with him, that they actually kind of have to keep her. But I think Chris has at least semi-publicly said, you know, th I think this works out well either way, right? Like it's it's really, we we have a win-win situation here. Either she is there and I wish her 20 years of tenure at uh, Harvard presidency, discrediting that institution and all of its peers, or we we get the scalp. Um, and either way, it's just a question of degree of win. And so uh, it's wonderful. These these institutions are completely corrupt. They are completely discredited. And the more that we can discredit them in the public mind, uh, the better it will be for American society as a whole. I'll just add briefly that one thing I'm really looking forward to in 2024 is the attempt to dismantle not just DEI and universities and, and affirmative action policies, but also how they've been really entrenched in the um, in the U.S. Uh, government bureaucracy, whether it's SBA programs that only give loans to so-called disadvantaged people, but disadvantaged just means you're a person of color, um, whether it's uh, refusing to give loans to white farmers, they only give it to, to Black and Hispanic farmers, and, and all of these various programs that um, are, are oriented specifically towards um, helping people of a certain skin tone and, and have nothing really to do with real um, real minority status or, um, or disadvantaged status um, the way that they claim. Um, I know groups like America First Legal, Pacific Legal, and, and some other more conservative-leaning um, legal groups are, are sort of taking these on systematically since that affirmative action decision. So I'm hopeful that we'll make some waves on that front too. And with that, we'll uh, we'll go to final thoughts. So j just to follow up briefly on this, defunding and dismantling the DEI regime, I think ought to be one of the top agenda items for the Republican movement. I have no optimism whatsoever that House Republicans are going to push that incredibly hard uh, in this election year. And I suspect we'll be talking a lot about the fights between conservatives and the rest, the majority of the House Republicans in terms of how House Repu moderate House Republicans want a milk toast agenda and go along to get along and won't run on anything bold uh, in this election year. But it would seem to me that it's very simple to make the case and compelling, again, sort of 80-20 to the American people. Why would you fund an anti-American, bigoted, anti-excellence uh, regime at our schools that will end up populating all of our most influential sectors of power in corporate America and obviously in the federal government as well. This is a layup. 
I hope House will minimally do the oversight to expose the rotten corruption, but then actually present a policy agenda and make Democrats defend the anti-Americanism, the anti-excellence, and the racism that's inherent to the regime uh, that they have put forth and perversely imposed upon the entire country. Um, I'd, I'd just add quickly, uh, as I look at these topics, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is that we see a bunch of what I would call regime level conflicts. And, and I think uh, you guys have all made reference to that. And I think that that is significant about the political moment that we're in. I think that 2024 is going to be, uh, I'm not one of these guys, I, I hate it when it's, you know, these these sort of cringy um, uh, folks are like, you know, 2020 is the most important election of our lifetime. Like, I don't necessarily even think 2024 is the most important election of our lifetime, but 2024 as a political year may be the most important political year in our lifetimes in ways that I think are just hard to anticipate how it's going to play out. But but I think this regime level conflict does suggest to me that the frog is being boiled and we're we're the frog and they've been boiling us slowly for a long time. But now the, the left has perceived for whatever reasons that they need to to speed up the boiling. And the question is, are we going to hop out of the pot and uh, and say, oh, my gosh, this water is getting hot and we sort of woken up to the situation and, and the, the danger of the situation that we're in, both for the Republican Party and as a country? Um, I, I can't say that I'd be super optimistic based on our performance as a party uh, in the past, but the fact that at least at an activist level, we're beginning to talk about this sort of stuff and these regime level conflicts as what they are, I think it does provide me with with some optimism that more of us have, have sort of figured out what time it is. Yeah, it sounds very uh, specific and petty after that that uh, sum up uh, that Jeremy just gave, but I, I have two real brief parting thoughts. One, keep an eye on uh, the continuing Palestinian protests, um, pro-Palestine protests, in cities across the country. It's very clear to me this is now much broader than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's an anti-Western protest. It's also the current thing uh, that, you know, street-level democratic left-leaning activists are all about today. I mean, it, it feels a lot like 2020. It's slightly tamped down still, in my view, from that. But it's, um, so for example, uh, over the Christmas season, right, and New Year's season, we had an uh, an incident where the protesters were trying to simultaneously shut down JFK and LAX airports and basically completely foobar American airspace um, over the holidays. As these these protests continue, um, yesterday there was an attempt to fly a balloon over the airspace of JFK Airport. I mean, these are federal crimes; uh, they should be prosecuted as such. Um, I mean, we talk, we throw out the words to rest domestic terrorism all the time, but um, it's it, attempting to forcibly shut down the nation's airports is uh, at least a, there's a colorable argument that that's domestic terrorism. Um, so I think those those things are going to escalate. I think um, th there's no indication that they're slowing down. It happens several times a week that a bridge gets shut down in New York City or, or whatever else. So I think it's worth keeping an eye on. And then just one housekeeping note um, really briefly. When we talk, we talked about the uh, the two law professors who who floated this idea in the New York Times, right? Um, there's a lot of hay being made out of the fact that they're bedsock members, like by people who don't understand how the Federalist Society actually works. Like, yeah, these are two like never Trump sort of lefty Republicans uh, who are lawyers. If you're a lawyer, you literally just check, you send twenty five dollars or fifty dollars in, uh, and you become a member of the Federalist Society. So uh, a lot of people, both on the, I've noticed the left making a lot of hay out of this and saying like. 
the Fe even the Federalist Society thinks that this is a reasonable argument. Uh, that's not the Federalist Society saying that. It's nothing official. It's just like two among what are probably thousands and thousands of lawyers who have sent, you know, 50 bucks to the Federalist Society. So I just wanted to, to clarify that for people who are not familiar with how that organization works. And I'll close just by flagging um, something of a controversial media moment that happened on the New Year's Eve broadcast on CNN and CBS. The first thing that was shown after the ball drop was a very passionate gay kiss with lots of tongue. And um, I, uh, I'm, I'm resistant to, um, I guess, it's interesting the way people are talking about it. Um, of course, the, the reaction from um, people who think it's no big deal are saying, oh, gay people exist. What do you care? And I would just say that whenever a very minority sexual orientation or position is advertised um, reflexively as the moment um, or the primary um, case in, um, in, in a big cultural event, uh, we have to ask ourselves why that is. And um, that was a deliberate choice. You can see that this couple was pulled out of the crowd and given um, some very um, suspicious corporate advertising uh, Planet Fitness hats to wear while they had the kiss. And so I just think um, we should ask ourselves why CNN decided specifically to publicize that kiss. Um, just recently in my neighborhood, there was a car um, sitting at in one of the guest parking spots that had a bumper sticker on it that said, um, I'm a, a power bottom with a rainbow heart next to it. And um, it's, uh, I think, a indication of, of how quickly the um, slippery slope argument that um, the right was advancing during the uh, Obergefell decision um, turned out to be correct and true. And um, so I think over the next year, the media is going to continue to play a very huge role in trying to normalize culturally some things that, um, are still very much up for debate. I thought you were going to talk about aging Green Day members uh, on, <laughs> on the stage, yet still thinking they're raging against the man by <laughs> criticizing yeah, that, That's another one. That's another one. <laughs> um, all right. With, with that pop culture note, uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and say goodbye. So on behalf of me, Inez, Jeremy, Ben, and Amber, uh, see you at the next Nacon Squad.